Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Uh, One thing I have learned, having been a parent now for 15 and a half years, is parenting is hard. Wow, that's quite the response. Amen. (laughs) You know, we don't get a lot of that around here, the amen. So uh, not since Sandy Ming passed do we get many amens. But parenting is hard. (laughs) Preach it, brother. It's difficult. Uh, One uh, one, uh, way that parenting has been described is it's like ripping out your heart and having it walk around outside of your body. And I think for many moms, that's clearly the way they experience it. Dads, we kind of check out. I don't know what our problem is sometimes. But when we really sit and think about it or when our wife goes away for two weeks, we realize, yeah, this is pretty hard. (laughs) And I can only imagine, I like to use my imagination when I read the scriptures, and I can only imagine what it must have been like to try to parent Jesus. I mean, on the one hand, I'm sure it was pretty easy because the dude did not get into trouble. Um, he didn't, you know, pick on his neighbor kids, although his picking on neighbor kids would have been a little different, I suppose, if he had done so. Um, it would have been uh, probably at times you as a parent would have felt convicted because you might lose your temper or your cool or you might say a few choice Hebrew words. Uh, and most likely, actually, they probably spoke Aramaic at Jesus' house. But uh, whatever they spoke and whatever was said, I'm sure there were many times Mary or Joseph found themselves having to go, I am so sorry, Jesus. I can't believe I just said that. I can only imagine how difficult it must have been to parent Jesus. And just drawing from my own experience of trying to parent Sam, Bailey, and David, I know there are many times I have to go, gang, dad messed up. Dad blew it. Please forgive me. I found that those are powerful words to ask for forgiveness. Uh, if you're a parent and you've not asked your kids for forgiveness, let me encourage you <laughs> that that is a powerful tool. It'll open up your relationship with your kids. If you admit that you haven't done it exactly right. You know, there's many times, especially with Sam, we say, look, we've never parented a 15 and a half year old before. We are making this up as we go along. We read books. We listen to some radio shows. Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we really blow it. And please forgive us when we do. And it's not good enough to have a blanket statement of please forgive us. I found that time and time again, hey, uh, dad's an idiot. I'm really sorry. I blew it. Parenting is difficult. And sometimes as parents, we like to uh, go to these 10 big commandments. And we like to throw it in our kids' face of, well, the fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother, and you're not doing it. (laughs) And then it continues. I mean, did you know that that is the only command that has a promise attached to it? Honor your father and mother so that it will go well with you and you will have a long life in the land that God is providing for you. In other words, it's kind of uh, implied that mom and dad may string you up someday. That was a joke. Nancy got it. But there's something to be said for honoring our parents. But there are times when parents just aren't terribly honorable. 
And then there's also nine other commandments. And the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. And so sometimes parents place kids before God. And sometimes kids place parents before God. And sometimes families place family before God. And I often cringe a little bit with some of the the Christian slogans and the Christian way of seeing the world. And they, they talk about family. Family being so tight and close. And many of us have experienced fractures in our families. Fractures, whether through uh, death or perhaps divorce or through estrangement. We have experienced fracture in family. And when I look at Jesus and I ask the question, what role should family play in my life and in the world? I think we can learn much from how Jesus handled his family relationships. I think we can learn a lot from Mary and how she managed her relationship with Jesus. And especially as Jesus gets older. Last week, we looked at a story when Jesus was about 12. And Jesus starts to to turn the tables on mom and dad. And he's basically lost. His parents have misplaced him for three days. And he's in Jerusalem at his father's house at the temple. And right there, it's like Jesus coming out party. Mom, dad, you're not all that. It's about my dad in heaven. You know, as a father of junior hires and one freshman, I'm starting to find out, dad, you're not all that. And as much as I don't like that, as much as I would like to have my kids, you know, honor me. As much as I would like them to, to remain under my thumb. As much as I would like for them to make wise choices and to always do what I tell them to. Uh, more and more it's becoming obvious that that's just not the way it's always going to work. And right now, Marnie and I are wrestling through and moving through. How do we redefine family with teenagers? And many of you who are empty nesters. Have had to deal with that. And some of you go, yay, they're gone. And others of you go, bummer, they're gone. And many of us probably feel both feelings at the same time. But we have all had to wrestle with the redefinition of family. And Christmas, which we just celebrated, many of you have a pronounced feeling of how your family is being redefined. I remember the first Christmas without my grandfathers. My Granddad or my, my grandpa Steiger uh, passed away, uh, and then a few months later, in, both in the fall, a few months later in November, my granddad Weinkoop passed away. And we g- gathered in Fruta, Colorado, and we had granddad's funeral, um, and we had Thanksgiving in a, a Super 8. <laughs> it was just a strange holiday season. And then Christmas came and there's a pronounced feeling that somebody was supposed to be there wasn't. And we had to wrestle with the redefinition of our family. And this happens again and again and again in our lives. And if it hasn't happened to you yet, you just haven't lived long enough. 
When we look at Mary and Jesus and their relationship, and, and the reason I say Mary and Jesus is because Joseph is not in the picture now. He probably has passed away in these stories that we read. Jesus is right at the beginning of his ministry. He's, he's about 30 years old. It took him a while to grow up, didn't it? Actually, not so much. He's been supporting his mom as a dutiful firstborn all these years. And, and now he's going to leave the farm. Jesus is going to go and he's going to begin his public ministry. And the story we're going to look at today is the very first sign that Jesus performs. And it's a fascinating story. And when we look at the story, it's easy to look at it as the first sign. It's easy to look for it, at it from Jesus' perspective. But what I want us to do today is look at it from Mary's perspective as much as possible. What was it like for Mother Mary? The story is found in John chapter 2. And in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we read about the water being changed into wine. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone. <laughs> I love that line, when the wine was gone. How does wine get gone? Anyways, at a wedding. Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, it's interesting because uh, John is setting up this story uh, about a wedding feast. And some of the things that we don't understand about wedding feasts is from the first century is our wedding feasts are nothing like their wedding feasts. Our, our weddings are nothing like their weddings. And so what happened at an ancient first century Jewish wedding was uh, after a year of betrothal or engagement or basically late, they were legally married. After a year of that, the groom and his groomsmen, his buddies, and pretty much the whole town would show up at the bride's front door in the early evening. And the young men would make speeches. And most of the speeches would have to do with how the groom would be faithful and love her and provide for her and take care of her. And they would have children and God's blessing would be upon them. And after they said their speeches, they would yank the bride out of her home and they would carry her across town with all these candles and music and song and dancing. And they would go to the father of the groom's house where there would be a great feast. And the whole town would be there. Cana was a town about eight miles from Nazareth. It was a small town of probably two, three, four hundred people. And at this wedding feast, the whole town is there. And as we see, Jesus and his mother have come from nearby Nazareth. So not only is it just the town of Cana, but it's, it's extended family, it's extended friends, it's business associates who make their way to this little town of Cana. And the interesting thing about a wedding feast back then was it wasn't just for a few hours after a wedding, after pictures are taken. Depending on your means and depending on your status and depending on your place in society, the wedding feast could last for seven days. We have got it wrong, people. <laughs> These folks knew how to party, okay? In fact, for seven days and every single day, a new person or a new party would probably arrive 
enjoying the festivities. And some would leave because they had obligations, but some would come. And for seven days, they would carry on celebrating this new marriage. Their culture was very different than ours. Their culture was all about honor. All about saving face, all about their name, all about their heritage, all about their family. I mean, we get a little of this in rural America when we see, oh, well, he's a such and such or she's a so and so. Right. And we attach people to their family who they grew up with. Um, We don't do that so much where I grew up in the city. I knew lots of Smiths and none of them were related. I knew no other wine coops. And the ones I knew were all related. Um, but in the city, you judged people individually, not so much on their, their family, because most of the time we didn't know their family. We just knew them. And here in the, here in rural America, we tend to judge people based on their family. Well, no wonder he did that. He's a such and such or she's a so-and-so. And that's a little bit more like the ancient world, but not quite as amped up as it was back then. It was all about honor. It was all about our status in the community. And so instead of asking the question, what do I feel like doing today? You know, I have the right to do it. I can do that because I want to. Or as I tell my kids, how come you get to do that? I'm like, because I'm 44 and I can do whatever I want. (laughs) That's in jest, though, because I know I can't. But back then they asked, what ought I do? Because of who I'm related to, because of my status in the community, because of of who I am, what ought I do? What should I do? And so when the wine runs out at a wedding feast, and we don't know how many days they are into this party, could have been within hours and more people showed up and less wine was available. Maybe there was a servant who was really klutzy and he just... Spilled all this wine. We don't know the story, but somehow the wine runs out and Mary turns to her firstborn son and says. They have no more wine. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a dutiful firstborn son. And when my mom turns to me and says they have no more wine. Number one, I don't know exactly what she wants from me. Number two. I kind of sort of feel like, uh uh-oh, dear mom wants me to do something about this. And so Jesus, in red letters, spoke this way. Woman, why do you involve me? Now, I read that without probably the true tone of voice. In the Greek, the word for woman is gyne. And the word here that he uses is also a word that can be used for mother. In fact, in John, where we later in John, where we see Jesus on the cross and he turns to John and to his mother, Mary, he says, woman, here is your son and son. Here is your mother. And both of those uses, woman and mother is the same word. And so this word is a very tender word. Okay, so when you read it, you're like, gee whiz, who died and made you God, right? He's not using it that way. He's probably speaking somewhat tenderly to her, but yet with a tad bit of an edge. Woman, mom, 
why do you involve me? And I'm sure he felt like me when my mom turns to me with some ginormous problem that I'm not sure what she wants me to do. And, and we don't know what Jesus has done at home. Maybe, you know, the pot roast was burnt one day and Jesus just miraculously made it okay. So mom's, mom could save face for all the relatives who were coming over for pot roast that night. I mean, we don't know why Mary would turn to Jesus. There is no other recorded miracle or sign up to this point. So we're not sure why Jesus is asked by his mom where uh, she points out this dilemma to her, her son. Maybe she thinks you're the Messiah, do something. Maybe she thinks, run to the liquor store and get some more. I mean, we don't know what she's thinking. But Jesus seems to know, intuit. Perhaps it's in her mannerism, in her tone of voice. He gets it that mom is turning to me to help fix this problem. And we're not sure why Mary cares so much about this problem. My guess is she was related to the people who are getting married. And so her name, her family name is on the line. Oh my gosh. Can you believe that they ran out of wine on the first day? In fact, in the ancient world, that could have been grounds for a lawsuit. Go figure that one out. Jesus understands that she wants him to do something. He says, woman, mom, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. What? See, in the gospel of John, John likes to use this word hour. And he uses it over and over and over and over again. And when he uses this word hour, it is a loaded word. And it is the hour of his death in Jerusalem that is being referenced whenever John uses the word hour. Now, you don't know this yet because you haven't read all the way to the end of the book. But once you read to the end of the book, you would go back and go, hey, didn't he say something about hour? Clear back in John chapter 2. And you see, what Jesus is referencing is he's saying, my hour, my time, God's will for my life hasn't yet come to pass. As a pastor, people ask me sometimes, um, how do I discover God's will for my life? <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know sometimes if I figured out God's will for my, my life. But here is a man in John 2 that is saying he understands God's will for his life. He understands his hour has not yet come. It is coming, but it's not here yet, dear mother. He understands. He knows something that Mary doesn't know. He knows something that everybody else doesn't know. He knows that it's not his time, you know. His mother intuits what he's saying. And this is a little hard for us to see because we're in, we are where we're at in history and they are where they're at in history. But she understands through Jesus' reference to this is not my hour. He is saying, I have the inside track on the mind of God. I have the inside track on God's will for my life. I know what the Father wants me to do and when he wants me to do it. And she thinks, yeah, you were born of a virgin, me. Um, 
I can't quite understand that you are your father's son. So perhaps you have insights into the father and to his will, uh, to what he wants done and when he wants it done that I don't see. And look at what Mary does in response. His mother said to the servants. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Not to Jesus. I'm done talking with him. He just confuses me. He says, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And you're thinking, okay, is this like some kind of mom ninja move here? You know, like, whoa, do whatever he tells you. And then the next thing you know, Jesus is doing what mom wanted. And so go and do it too, moms. Or if some exchange happened between Mary and Jesus that we probably need to work at figuring out here. And I think what happened is when Jesus said that to his mom, Mary, look, I know God's will. I know what he wants done and I know when he wants it done. Mary said, you know what, Jesus, you're right. You know better than me. I'm going to surrender my desire for wine. I'm going to surrender my desire for honor. I'm going to surrender my desire to save face. I'm going to surrender my desire for you to fix it. And I'm just going to trust. So whatever you say to do, let's do it. That's a pretty scary place for moms to be, isn't it? With their kids, with their husbands. That's a, that's a scary place for men to be. Because I found in my life, the older I get, the more places I avoid because I don't feel competent there. And I really like to go to places I feel competent in. I like to be with, in, in a scenario where I don't feel stupid. I like to be places where I feel comfortable, where I go, yeah, I can do that. I know how to do that. Uh, ballet? No, I'm staying away from that. Don't want to go there. That's stupid. I feel stupid. But, you know, a gun show? Yeah, let's go do that. That's fun. Shooting at things? Wow, that's easy. Mm-hmm. Building stuff? Nah, I got some friends that help me with that stuff. <laughs> Fixing my car? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but those things that I'm competent in and I enjoy, I go and I do those things. And so for me to be told by Jesus, hey, trust me, do what I tell you. Oh, serious? No. For any of us to be told, hey, trust me. Surrender to me. Do what I tell you. Well, with modern day Americans, that's just not really a, a message that sells too well. You see, here in John chapter 2, we see Jesus asking his mom the same question he asked a couple of guys earlier in John chapter 1. Follow me? You're going to follow me? <laughs> Could you imagine that, moms? Could you imagine that dad, your oldest kid, 30 years old? Hey, follow me. But I really want you to fix this. I really want you to take care of this. I really want you to help the family right now. We need you to come through. Don't talk unless spoken to. Don't touch anything. I mean, you know, we got the lecture every time we went shopping or, or to somebody's house that we were trying to impress. Did you get those lectures? <laughs> Kids are better seen, not heard, right? And my dad, I still feel that way around my dad. Yes, sir. No, sir. Sorry. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just freaking out a little bit. And so 
This is the scenario. This is the situation. And Jesus says, Mom, chill, trust. And she says, do whatever he tells you to do. It's almost like Jesus is testing mom and saying, are you going to quit being my mom and be my follower? And Mary gets it. I love this. Nearby stood six stone water jars. The kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Six. Jesus said to the servants, okay, so he's saying stuff. So they were told by Mary, do whatever he tells you. Fill the jars with water. Um, I've, I haven't tried this at home to see how long it would take out of the tap to fill up six things of 30 gallons apiece. And I've never tried drawing that much water out of a well. But time compression happens in this passage. Because I'm pretty sure it took a long time to fetch 180 gallons of water from the well. They fill these six jars with water. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Serious? (laughs) Okay, that's trust right there, right? You could look like a fool. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water, and you know the story, that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. You got to love a God who likes to turn water into wine. You got to love a God who likes to turn a lot of water into a lot of wine for a wedding feast. And as you saw at the end of that passage, it said this was the first of his signs. And that is an important word to pay attention to because it is a sign. And what does a sign do? It points the way. It tells you something about something or someone or somewhere. And this sign is telling you about Jesus. It is telling you who he is. It is telling you what to expect. And one of the things with a sign in the Bible is that you can turn it over and again. And it's like a multifaceted jewel. And you shouldn't tire of looking at it. You can look at it. You could play with it in your mind. You can just contemplate it. I mean, think of it. The sign of water to wine. Water that sustains us. We need it. It's something that we, we crave, we thirst, we, we become parched. Sometimes we don't drink enough and we become dehydrated and it can lead to life for us. And Jesus, the, the life of God, brings that water and turns it into wine, which the scriptures say makes our hearts joyful. Jesus is the source of, of water and wine. He's the, the, source, the source of sustenance and life, but he's also the source of joy. It looks forward to the the feast of the wedding of the lamb. 
That feast that we'll enjoy with Jesus in heaven one day, when there will be abundant wine, and when there will be abundant singing, when there will be abundant dancing, when there will be abundant joy. And Jesus looks forward to that time in this first sign of his. I mean, there's so much you can think about. It's his calling card as Messiah. And it says after this, his disciples put their faith in him. Mary was one. And I want you to see that Mary's faith unlocks the door. Mary is the key to unlocking the door for Jesus' first sign. You see, her understanding what Jesus is asking of her, her understanding that Jesus is saying, I'm God, are you going to follow me? I have the inside track to what God wants done and when he wants it done. Are you going to trust me? And when she says, yes, I'm going to trust you by turning to the servants and saying, do whatever he tells you. She unlocks the door. You know, back to parenting, right? How hard would it have been to trust Jesus at this moment? How hard would it have been? Aren't you like me as a parent sometimes? And you just say, you need to do that. And your kids say, well, why? Because I told you so. Jesus, you need to do it. Why? I'm your mother. I told you so. Or like Bill Cosby used to say, I brought you into this world and I'll take you out. (laughs) Of course, if it's Jesus, it's a little different story. You see, some of us are in the habit of telling Jesus what we want from him and expecting him to jump, expecting him to say, oh, yes, sir, I will get right on that for you. A lot of us have this notion that if we pray the right prayer and we just do it the right way and we don't have any kind of doubt in our minds, it's it's called the health and wealth gospel. It's called the prosperity gospel. It's called the blab it and grab it gospel. It's called All sorts of things. And we just think that if I have enough faith, if I do it the right way, if I think about it and don't doubt it, if I just make my, uh, my, 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 my assertion of faith, if I don't speak doubt, but just have faith, then Jesus has to. Really? That's a small God. I mean, kids... You know, if you say it the right way and you stomp your feet enough and you threaten violence, have to. But God? That's like an ant telling you, put me down this moment. Quit stepping on us. Don't destroy our home. Who are you to pour gasoline on us and just light us on fire? What do you think? Who died and made you God? I mean, imagine an ant having that conversation with you. And we are so much smaller than the ants to God. Imagine us thinking, if I just do it the right way, live clean enough, show up at church just enough, get the right check marks checked, then God has to. Really? Let me be the first one to tell you, you will be severely Disappointed. Because one of his titles is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. 
And last I checked, and I've never lived in a monarchy, but just guessing and reading through some history and seeing how they all lived out their lives, kings and queens and such, they didn't like it when the peasant showed up and said, hey, I don't like how you're doing stuff around here. Oh, your highness. And those people had a tendency to not make it to the end of the story. Those people had a tendency to not get their way. Those people had a tendency to be put in their place. And the amazing thing is, and we sang about this several times in those songs today, God is patient. God is loving. God is long-suffering with us. And I'm not saying that if you believe those things, God's going to come riding down and He's going to hurt you or something. I'm just saying, prepare to be disappointed. Because God is not on anyone's leash. God is at no one's beck and call, not even his mom's. I mean, if anybody had pull with Jesus, right, moms? Because there's that saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. But Jesus said, if God ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. You see, Jesus understood that these couple of commandments, you will have no other gods before me, includes moms. And he understood that the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, is in submission to the first commandment. And there are times that if parents ask us to go against what God would say, if parents ask us, To defy God. You know, if you really honored me, if you really respected me, you would do what I tell you. And you'd quit knock off going to that church thing. And you would quit hanging out with those people. And you would, boy, you're weird. What is your deal? And we're going to see at next week's sermon that that's the tension Jesus lived with. His mom at one point thought he was insane. But Jesus understood that God comes first. I want you to just picture in your minds, what would your life look like if you put God first? What would that look like for you? What would be on the cutting block? What in your life would you need to go, you know what? That's putting me first, not God first. What things in your life would you have to to quit doing? What things in your life would you have to start doing? What things in your life would you have to put a different priority on? What things in your life would you have to put away? What things in your life would you have to say yes to? What things in your life would you have to say no to? And you see, here's the cool thing. You don't need me to point all those out to you because if you know Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you and he is busy telling you these things. And he's saying, hey, remember that thing I've been bugging you about a little bit? That's what he's talking about. That's one thing you need to surrender. That's one thing you need to give me. That's one thing you need to give up. That's one thing you need to do. And imagine... a 
A church full of people who started to say yes to God. I will put you first in my life. I will do what it takes. I will surrender those things. I will do what you ask me when you ask me to do it. And I will knock off doing the things I want to do. Imagine what that group of people could do for God. Imagine what they could accomplish. And you know, it's fun because the Bible has a story about people who did just that. And the book of Acts, which ends the New Testament, the history of the New Testament, it ends with this notion that the church goes on. And that there's this group of people who still to this day are asked, will you follow me? Will you surrender to me? Will you do what I ask you to do when I ask you to do it? And all of us are still participating in the writing of church history. Someday, 200 years from now, when the internet is long gone or implanted in our heads or however that's working, and people look back at us, will they go, wow, that was a community of people that got it right. That was a community of people who said yes to God, surrendered to God, made sacrifices to God. Or will they look back and go, another black guy in church history. Did you check that one out? Did you hear those stories? Can you believe they thought about that? Didn't they know people were going to study them later on? Didn't they know that they had an opportunity to write out and help God in his story? What say you? You know, right now, because I'm such a great orator, everybody's going, yes, right? (laughs) Everybody's going, dude, wrap it up. (laughs) One or the other. But we will never know the true... I shouldn't say we will never know. We will not anytime soon know your answer to this question. That's why it's such a difficult question. Because the, the proof of whether you say yes to this, you won't see for perhaps years, decades. And maybe some of us won't see the proof of this in our lifetime. But one person does see it. That's God. So what say you? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of Mary. Thank you that uh, we see in her right at the beginning of the Gospels that following you is not easy, that it requires our surrender that it requires us trusting that you know what's best, that you have the inside track on what God's will is for our lives and for this world, that you know what is right, what needs to be done, and when it needs to be done. And I pray, Father, that each of us would trust you in that and we would truly surrender. We would bow the knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords. More than that, We would put aside our selfish desires 
that we would seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. And that we ourselves would see in our lives as we do this that you take care of us. And that is a thrilling and exhilarating ride. Holy Spirit, help us to say yes to you and no to self. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you surrender to him. May you say yes to God and no to self. Amen.